Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Way. The Bible teaches that God's people will walk in the way of blessing and life, while those who reject God's instruction and rule will walk in the way of destruction and death. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to be looking today at Psalm 2. We're doing this uh, little mini-series called The Way. I began it last week by looking really at Psalm 1 mainly, but as I said last week, Psalm 1 and 2 are an introduction to the book of Psalms. I explained why that's true and why they should be read together in the after hours this past Tuesday. If you're interested, you can look that up. But we're going to look at Psalm 2 today, and then we'll be kind of looking at both psalms over the next couple of weeks as we're meditating together on the way. And today we're going to look at the way, Jesus Christ. So Psalm 2, hear now the word of the living, reigning, sovereign God. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter, You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May God bless his holy word. One of the great things that can happen as you develop a lengthy story is you can kind of slowly introduce sometimes even the person who's going to become the main character of the story. One of my favorite ways in doing this is the character of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, which I didn't even read as a young child. I actually read them first when I was a midshipman at the academy and then continuing as a Marine. And when you first start reading them in the proper order, by the way, not the way they put them out today, but with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first as the first book, The children keep hearing about this Aslan, and it says that their hearts are kind of stirred, and they're not even sure why. They don't don't even know who he is yet, but something resonates inside them as they hear about them, and you kind of experience it that way because there is this unfolding of who Aslan is throughout the book until you actually meet him. 
And then throughout the series, including as you move all the way towards later on and come to the magician's nephew and you discover that he had created the whole world and you read it and you understand who he is. The whole story revolves around him, but it's, he's gradually uh, revealed to you to understand who he really is. This is the same way it is in the reading of Scripture. The central person in all of Scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you and I are reading anything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and we're not seeing Jesus, we're not seeing it properly, and we know that because Jesus himself told us the entire word of God is about him. He did this on multiple occasions in John 5, 38 and 39 and Luke chapter 24. He is the central figure of Scripture. But kind of like Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, we don't immediately see him right there in Genesis 1, 1, and it's explained who he is. Rather, it's slowly revealed to us throughout the pages of Scripture. And one of the key places we see this happening is in the book of Psalms, in particular here in Psalm 2. So we're going to dive into Psalm 2 and see how it points us to the way Jesus Christ. Now in Psalm 2, there is a key figure. Psalm 2 revolves around this figure who is the Messiah, the King, and the Son. Now, notice the first thing is he's the Messiah or the Lord's anointed one. We read in verses 1 to 3 of the psalm that the nations are rebelling against God. Now, if you've just finished Psalm chapter 1, it's kind of amazing because we've been told that the way of the wicked is going to perish. And then the very next verse says, but the nations are raging. They are conspiring. The peoples are plotting in vain. And it's a question because since God has already told us that the way of life, the way of blessing is a way of walking with him, why would the nations be doing this? And in fact, I'll come back to this in a future teaching on meditation. It's really interesting that in Psalm 1, the wise man meditates on the word of God. Here, the word where it says that the people are, are uh, plotting, that word is actually the word meditate. Rather than meditating on how to know God and obey him, they are meditating on how to get around who he is. They are meditating about how to throw off Yahweh and his anointed one. And so notice here it's specifically that they don't want to submit to the anointed one. And that, that word there, the, the NIV translates it anointed one. The Hebrew word is Mashiach, which is Messiah. The Greek word is Christos, which is Christ. That's all this is. It is to throw off the Lord and his Messiah, the Lord and his Christ. And the reason that they're referred to as the anointed one is originally the prophets, the priests, and the kings in the Old Testament, you see them being anointed with oil. And they're anointed with oil to represent their commission that they are servants set apart to serve Yahweh and to serve his people to help see his purposes accomplished in the earth. But the oil that is poured on them is really a representation of the Holy Spirit. And if you think about this in David's life, we won't turn there in the text, but in 1 Samuel 16 and 17, we read where David is anointed with oil when Samuel the prophet is told, this is going to be my king. And he's anointed with oil, and we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. 
from that day forward. And suddenly David, this young man, is altered. And in 1 Samuel 16, we start to see him becoming mighty as he talks about that, you know, he, he fought with the lion and the bear who tried to get the sheep and he struck them down. And in 1 Samuel 17, all Israel is quaking in fear before Goliath. And David rises up in power, not because of something in David, but because he's been anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. It's not the oil, it is the Holy Spirit that has come upon David. And David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would dare to mock the living God? I will rise up and I will strike him down. Now that's because of the Spirit of the Lord. And in Isaiah chapter 61, 1, the prophet Isaiah puts it this way. He says, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That word anointed is uh, Messiah, which which is Mashiach. It is the, the verbal form of Mashiach. He's, he's made me his Messiah because I'm going to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, this is obviously the very verse that Jesus used when he sat and gave his first sermon, and he said, these words are fulfilled. So, the first thing we understand is there's this anointed one that the people don't want to submit to, and this anointed one is the Messiah. He's anointed with the Spirit to accomplish Yahweh's purposes. But the psalm goes on, and it describes this same person as not only the, the anointed one, the Messiah, secondly, he is also the Lord's King. Because interestingly, notice You've got this whole thing is about kingship. In verse 1, we read that it's the kings that are plotting and conspiring uh, against the Lord. In verse 4, we read the one enthroned in heaven laughed. There's many ways that he could have described Yahweh, but notice it specifically that Yahweh's on his throne. The heavenly king is laughing at the earthly kings. In fact, he scoffs at them. Scoffers scoff against God and his word and his king, but God scoffs back at them. And it's a scary thing when, in essence, you shake your fist in God's face, and God's response is in no way, shape, or form fear. He just laughs and says, are you, are you kidding me? Seriously, you think you're going to take me on? And notice God's response that he rebukes them, he terrifies them, he says, I've installed my king on Zion. I've chosen who the king is. This anointed one is my king. He rules for me, and I'm the one who's placed him on the throne. So when you rebel against him, you are rebelling against me. Your response to him is your response to me. There is no way to honor me and to despise the king that I have installed. However you treat him is how you treat me. And so the anointed one, the Messiah, is also the king who God has installed to rule for him. And we're seeing a central issue here that we'll meditate on another week, which is this. When you talk about the way, the central issue in the way is who rules? Do I rule or does God's installed king rule? Because it cannot be both. And see, here's the problem. Ever since the fall in the garden, we are born with a bent that who do we want to rule? I mean, I want to rule. Every parent knows. Kids come out, you don't have to teach them to disobey. It comes quite 
naturally. We are all self-centered. And Psalm 2 is telling us, yeah, but see, God has installed a king. And the central question is, do you submit to the king? Or do you spend your energy plotting, conspiring, trying to throw him off? Because rather than receiving his kingship as good news, I receive his kingship as chains that bind me up. Which way am I? Third thing we learn about this person is this same one is the Lord's son. As we move into the third part of the psalm, the title that kind of takes over is no longer anointed one, Messiah, nor is it the king, rather it is the son. So in verse 7, the Messiah speaks and says this, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. In verse 12, God speaks to the kings and says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this one, the Messiah King, is also referred to as the Son. And it's indicating a unique relationship between the anointed King, the Messiah, and Yahweh himself. There may be all kinds of other kings around, but none of them are related to Yahweh the way this individual or person is. And so the anointed one, the Messiah, is the King who God has installed to rule for him because he is the Son of of God. That's the central message here in Psalm 2. And I want you to notice, God gives this installed Messiah King Son a promise in Psalm 2, 8, and 9. And I love these verses. The Lord says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So notice God is making a promise to this uh, Messiah King Son, a promise and a decree that what I'm giving you is not just Israel. I am giving you all the nations. All of them are yours. And you will rule. They may reject you. They may turn against you. That will be no more of a challenge to you than a piece of pottery would be if you took an iron rod and smacked it. The rod's not going to break. The pot is going to break. And Yahweh promises you will have universal dominion. You will have full authority and full reign from sea to shining sea. Notice how the Lord puts it in verses 10 to 12. He specifically speaks to the kings who remember at the beginning of the psalm, they're turning all of their mental energy, they're they're meditating, all of their being is turned to how do we reject the rule of this anointed one? How do we reject the rule of this king? How do we throw off this son of Yahweh? We don't want him. God comes back and speaks to them in verses 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. This is God saying there's two ways, and you're showing that you're wanting to walk the wrong way. Be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And how do I serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling? Kiss the Son. Embrace the Son. The Son. 
You think you're the king, there's a king of kings. You think you're the ruler, there's a ruler over you. Be wise, embrace it. Be wise, get in your place. That's what God's telling them. Now, how do most kings like it when they're spoken to that way? See, we don't. But see, the the reality is it's not just kings and presidents and general secretaries of the United Nations. It's you and I. Every one of us fight and want to do that. But God speaks to us and says, there is a king of kings, and I'm warning you, embrace him. I'm warning you, kiss him. Because there's two options. You can find refuge in him, or you can rebel against him, but there is no third way. Which will you do? Now the question that should arise when we read this psalm is, well, who is this Messiah this king, this son. Who is it? Well, the first thing is it clearly had reference to David and his descendants in the Old Testament. David and his descendants were referred to by all of these titles. They were referred to as the anointed ones. They were referred to as the king, and they were referred to as sons of God. Psalm 89 is a long psalm that is a reflection on David and his descendants as the anointed king, son of the Lord, as they rule over Israel. In Psalm 89, I'm just going to look right now at verses 20 and 26 to 29. Notice how the Lord speaks to David and his sons. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil, I have done what? Anointed him. Okay, same word. In verse 26, he will call out to me, you are my Father, my God, the rock, my Savior. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Notice you've got all three titles here. I've anointed him. I am his father. He is my firstborn. And I have made him the most exalted of the kings of the earth. And I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. So God had made this promise to David. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here in Psalm 89, the psalmist is reflecting on it. This is not David. This is someone centuries later. And they are recognizing that David and all the sons that followed him were anointed as kings. If you want to think about it, they were little m messiahs. Secondly, they are God's firstborn sons, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. It actually says that when Solomon sat on David's throne, it's called the throne of the Lord that he is sitting on. And then thirdly, they are David's, uh, I mean, they are Yahweh's sons, and God promises to establish him on his throne and his descendants after him forever. So quite clearly, Psalm 2 initially points to David, and most scholars believe, and with good reason, that when a new 
son out of David's line would become the king in Jerusalem. This is the psalm that would be read. You know, like we've got our ceremonies when a new president comes in, right? And they say certain things, and the, uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Court stands there and makes them take the oath, and we do all this. Well, this is what they probably use for that is Psalm chapter 2. And it's a major theme in the Old Testament, and it's enshrined in the Davidic covenant. However, if you know your Old Testament, there's a problem. Because forever means forever. But did David's sons sit on the throne forever? And here's the interesting thing. You might say, well, gee, I would go talk to that guy who wrote Psalm 89 and say, didn't you hear about the exile? And the answer is yes, because that's actually what Psalm 89 is about. Psalm 89 is about the exile and the problem. And it, and it seems like the covenant with David has failed. So we'll just look at a few of the later verses, verse 38 and 39 and then verse 49. The psalmist says this, after all this glorious stuff, you've installed him, you've anointed him, you've made him the firstborn of the kings, you've done all of this, he comes back and says this, but you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and defiled his crown in the dust. In verse 49, O Lord, where is your former great love which in your faithfulness you swore to David? You need to understand the exile is not just shattering because they're not in Israel. That was shattering. I'm, I'm right now actually reading uh, the book Roots, uh, that if you're my age, you may remember the, the miniseries from back in the 70s. I'm reading it, you know, the whole story of Kunta Kinte, and it's shattering to hear about a guy who was snatched up one day as a teenager, or a 17-year-old. He's snatched up from Africa, put on a ship, and brought over here to a land. It's, it's shattering to read about it. And I put myself in that place and think, what would that have been like? Well, that was true for the exile, but it's not only that. There's a far deeper question for them. It's not just that I'm going through difficult times. It's, I thought you made a covenant with us. And I thought that you promised David and his sons were going to rule forever. Um, I'm in Babylon, and it's not a son of David on the throne. It's Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. And his sons on the throne. And Psalm 89, whether it was written then or in the time of the Persian kings, where is your covenant promise? There is a deep existential angst that goes on in a number of these psalms that is saying, God, what about your covenant? Have you forsaken the covenant? Where is the Messiah? Where is the king? Where is the son? We thought it was David. We thought it was all these other kings. We thought it was Hezekiah. We thought it was Josiah. Here we are. Well, the prophets began to rise up and speak at the time of the exile. So I'm going to read two verses, one from Jeremiah and one from Ezekiel. Jeremiah is the prophet that told everybody, you're going into exile. You're, you're all trusting that, no, 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 David's going to have a son sit right on that throne right over there. We know it's going to keep happening. And Jeremiah says, it's not going to, you're going to go into exile. And Ezekiel is a prophet during the exile. Here's what they both say. 
Jeremiah 23, 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. I don't have time today to say, to go through all of this, but notice he's a son of David. Um, he is a righteous branch, which goes back to Isaiah's uh, statement about the, the root coming out of a uh, stump. Uh, coming out of the root of Jesse that's going to grow forth and spread out. And so the term the branch became a picture of the Messiah, and he's going to reign as the king. In Ezekiel 37, it says this, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. Ezekiel actually calls him David. Now, this is not about David literally. In fact, Peter picks up on that on Pentecost Sunday and says, well, I can tell you David's still in his grave over there. Okay, we can go visit his bones. But a descendant of David has now been exalted, and this has been accomplished. And that's exactly what Ezekiel's saying. And notice what he says. He's going to be a king, he's going to be a shepherd, and he's going to fix the problem. Because the problem is Israel's in exile in the time of Ezekiel because they did not follow God's laws. They were not following his decrees. If we want to put it in terms of our series, the problem is we come to the fork in the road, we see the two ways, and what do we keep picking? The wrong way. And Israel did it over and over and over again. And then they would get a good king. They would get Hezekiah to come in, and they would think, this is going to be it. And then Hezekiah blows it, and then his son Manasseh comes in, and they have to say, he's the worst king we've ever had. You have wise Solomon who raises the fool Rehoboam all the way down. Even young Josiah who does all these things, and he dies in his youth. None of them can fulfill the promise. And so, but what the prophets are saying is, make no mistake, you're in exile, but the promises that God made in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, the promises he made in the Davidic covenant are still in effect. God has not forgotten. There will be a Messiah who will rule as king because he is the son of Yahweh. So, who is that Messiah King Son? As Christians, we know it's the Lord Jesus. But how do we know this? Well, number one, obviously, when you read the psalm, as I did it, it's pretty clear who it is. You can't be a Christian and miss it. But secondly, the New Testament quotes Psalm 2 all over the place. It's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. For example, at Jesus' water baptism, which is his first public appearance, at his water baptism, as he's down in the water, we read in Mark 1.11, a voice came from heaven, you are my son, with you I am well, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is a combination of Psalm 2.7, you are my son is Psalm 2.7, and then whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, is Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, which is the song of the servant of the Lord, which is also about Jesus. So the Father here is speaking and saying, do you remember Psalm 2? Do you remember the promise that I made? Do you remember you all wondered? I know Psalm 89. You were wondering if I'd forgotten. I have not forgotten. The Messiah is here. The King is here. My son has come, and the Spirit 
is descending upon him to anoint him because he is my Messiah. John the Baptist himself testifies as John a couple days later. We read about it in John 1.34. John says, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. Now we read many references to Jesus being the Son of God in the New Testament, and it's a very rich term. It includes the fact that he is literally the second person of the Trinity. But there's also a reference when John says this, make no mistake, he heard the voice out of heaven and says, this is Psalm 2. This is Psalm 2-7. This is the Son of God, and I am testifying to you all, this is who he is. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. As we go on in John's gospel, Jesus is calling his disciples, and Nathaniel uh, one of the disciples he calls in, in John 1.49 uh, declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Who is the Son King? It's Psalm chapter 2. Nathaniel saying, you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that's been there. And I already recognize this from the very first meeting with Jesus. Peter, in his confession, if you go through the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew, you kind of come to a high point in the middle where Peter finally gets who Jesus is. And Jesus is asking, who do the people say I am? Oh, well, some say this and some say that. They go around and then Jesus looks and says, who do you say I am? Which is the key question, and I might remind you, that's the key question Psalm 1 and 2 pose to us. Who do you say he is? And here's Peter's answer. You are the Christ, the Messiah. It's the same word. The Son of the living God. Where do we find out about the anointed one who is the Son? It's Psalm 2. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. You didn't figure this out on your own. The Spirit has revealed this to you. The Father has let you know who I am. The early church, as they go through, because I want to remind you, the, the juxtaposition in Psalm 1 and 2. In Psalm 1, it appears, you know, hey, if you are on the right path, everything goes great. The way of the wicked's going to perish, but you're going to be blessed. The Lord's watching over. And then you come to Psalm 2, where the nations are rising up and plotting, and all of this is in turmoil around you. The early church sees Jesus fulfill the scriptures. They see him raised mightily from the dead. They, they experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I am sure many of them sat there and said, it's all grace and glory from here. Except it's not. And they start finding out immediately exactly what Psalm 1 and 2 say. Oh no, you can be blessed. God can be watching over you and you can still experience persecution. And so in Acts chapter 4, the apostles have been uh, imprisoned and they are being persecuted and the church comes back and gathers to pray. And how do we pray? Well, let's pray the Word of God. And what do they pray? Acts chapter 4, verse 25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. 
They're saying, we recognize Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And it went broader than we even realized. It wasn't some generic kings. We can name them. It was Pilate. It was Herod. There were Gentiles there. And we are shocked to say, but the people of Israel rejected their own Messiah. They rejected their own king. They rejected your son. But in this meeting, as the church prayed all of this, we're told the Holy Spirit came upon them and the place was shaken and they went out and spoke the word of God boldly, even in the midst of persecution. We continue in Acts chapter 13. We have the first recorded sermon of Paul. And Paul is preaching. Uh, in this case, he's preaching in a synagogue. And he says this in Acts 13, 32 and 33. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Paul says if you're reading Psalm 2 and you are reading that statement and you're not reading about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're reading it wrong. It is about Jesus. It is him being raised up and declared. Paul puts it in Romans 1, 3, and 4. We won't even turn there. But by the resurrection, he's declared with power to be the Son of God before us. The book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2 about Jesus a couple of times in the book. In Hebrews 1, 5, we read, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son? Today I become your father. The writer is saying, look, you think the angels are exalted? None of them does God speak this way to, only to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5, 5. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And this here is telling us that this is also even giving Jesus the priesthood. He's not only the Messiah, he's not only the king, he's not only declared to be the son, he's also the priest and the high priest over the people of God. All of these are going back to Psalm chapter 2. And then Jesus actually comes, and this is critical for us to understand as the church. Please, sometimes the church acts as if God became interested in the Gentiles after Jesus came. That is not true. When Jesus gives the Great Commission to the church, what text do you think this is drawing upon? Listen, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Who is he? I'm the king of kings. I am installed. I rule I reign. All authority is me. So therefore, what do you do? Therefore, go and make disciples of who? All nations. They're out there. They are plotting. They are conspiring. They are trying to figure out how to throw it off. And they may not welcome you. But you go and you proclaim and you make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. They want to throw it off. They're, they're plotting how to throw off these chains. You're going to explain to them these are not chains, they're freedom. And you're going to teach them that they were made to obey me, and I'm going to be with you. 
Friends, the Great Commission is the church taking Psalm 2. Did you hear? Ask of me, I will make the nations your inheritance. It has been the heart of God down through the ages. Our God is a missionary God, and He has promised the nations. Please, every week when we take time and we pray for missions, it's not just a little thing we do in the meeting so I can be grabbing the stand and getting it ready. We have to have the heart of God. He is after the nations because Jesus Christ is installed as the King. He is anointed as the Messiah. He is the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and we go forth under His authority. And they may conspire. They may plot. They are trying to crush the church in Indonesia. And I prophesy now, they will lose. Not because I say so. Not because the church has figured all of this out or we're faithful. We're not. We keep blowing it. But because Jesus is the King. And every nation... Every language is going to worship him on that day because it's the Father's promise to the Son. It's too small a thing. You don't deserve just Israel. It is every nation. There is no language where it should not be heard. Jesus is Lord. Every language, that needs to be heard. Somebody here who speaks Spanish, shout it out in Spanish. Nelson, what is that in Spanish? What is Jesus is Lord? Okay, I can't say it, but there you go. If we got another language, every language, you will never hear a language where it should not be said, Jesus is Lord. He has been installed, he's been called, and it's our privilege to go out. And I urge you, pray. This week I led a pastor's prayer meeting, and we went through Psalm 2. And the heart of it was about this, ask me, and I will give you the nations. If you don't know what to pray, you can know that's the will of God. Because he's promised it to Jesus Christ, and as his people, we can pray that and we can say, Lord, give us the nations. Give us Indonesia. Oh, God, give it to us. John Knox, when Scotland was wavering and did not know the gospel, cried out, God, give me Scotland or I will die. I can't go. I can't exist if Scotland does not turn to you. Friends, that's what our prayers ought to sound like. They have to be crying out for Jesus Christ to be recognized. So the New Testament is crystal clear. The messianic son king of Psalm 2 is Jesus Christ. Now how do we apply this? I want to look at two things and the, the worship team will be coming up and leading us in a response song and we'll come to the Lord's table. First is Psalm 1 and 2 and Jesus we apply this first off by recognizing Jesus is clearly the fulfillment of Psalm 2. If you read about the anointed one, the king, the son, and you don't see Jesus, you are not reading it correctly. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. But I want to remind you, as I said at the end of last week, he's also the fulfillment of Psalm 1. He is the blessed man who walks constantly in the ways of Yahweh, who always meditated, who never walked with the wicked, whom God is taking care of. He is the tree that bears fruit constantly. Jesus is the fulfillment. And he is ultimately, that means, that's why when you come to the New Testament and Jesus says, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life. He is telling you. He doesn't, I'm not pointing you to the way. I am the way. You want to be the blessed one of God? Be in me. Psalm 1 says that's walking the way. Psalm 2 says that's finding refuge in the sun. It's the same thing. Jesus says it is about me. He is the way. So I want to encourage you. When you Here with Psalm 1 and 2. When you're reading, are you looking for Jesus? The Word of God, first and foremost, friends, is not so you and I can find five principles to live my life today and manage stress. It's really not. There are things about that there, but you, you need to understand what the Word of God is about is Jesus Christ. And your need and my need is for Him. I don't care what you're facing, whether you're facing a debilitating disease or death, whether you're facing financial difficulties, people giving you a hard time at work, whatever's going on, your greatest need is Jesus. So is mine. And our hope and blessing is not me walking faithfully, it's that he walked faithfully. It's not me finding the way, it's that he is the way. Do we read the Word of God that way? You'll never be too up on Jesus. Lift him up. Second question, what does Psalm 1 and 2 speak to me? Because they do call for a response from me. It's not enough to say, well, it's about Jesus, and then therefore I go my own way and do what I want. Uh, I can't say Jesus is the way, and therefore I'm free to walk whatever way I want. Notice Psalm 1 and 2 call for a proper response to Jesus as the Messiah, as the King, as the Son of the Lord. In Psalm 2.12, it's put, uh, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is a call to you and me. When you realize he's the way, find refuge in him. Don't try to throw him off. Don't try to push him away. Embrace him in faith. In Psalm 1, it's the same message. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If you are meditating on the word of God day and night, who are you going to see? Jesus. And every place is going to be telling you, find refuge in him. Friends, have we done that? Have we looked to him? To be blessed, find refuge in the Son. To walk in the way is to find refuge in the Son and to delight in his word and be empowered by his spirit to walk in the way of righteousness. When you find refuge in the Son and you kiss the Son, I don't turn my mental energies to figuring out how to get around the commands in God's word because I know they're for my good. They're always for my good. Do I understand this? So I ask, first off, if you are here, have you responded to Jesus, the Messiah, King, Son? I, I didn't ask if you came to church. Didn't ask if you were raised in the church. I didn't ask if you said a prayer when you were 10. Have you responded to Jesus Christ? Have you face to face come to know who he is? Have you bowed the knee? Have you embraced the Son? Have you kissed the Son and said, you are the anointed one. You are the Son of God. You are my Lord. See, the Apostle Paul says that everyone who believes in his heart that Jesus is 
been raised in everyone who confesses with his mouth, what? Jesus is Lord, will be saved. Have we done that? I urge you, kiss the Son. Find refuge in him today. What we're going to do is we're going to sing the song. So if everybody can stand up, we're going to sing the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. This song describes that everything in the Word of God is about Jesus. Okay, so we're going to look at the mystery, and you see in this song how he's the second Adam, how he's the fulfillment of the law, how he's the God of life, how he is conquered death. He has done all of this for us. We live in the time where we've read the whole story. Jesus has been unveiled before our eyes. So I urge you, respond to him in this song. Kiss the Son. Find refuge in him, fresh and new. And then we will come to the Lord's table together. You may be seated. So we will now come to the table. And uh, that's really our introduction, so I'm going to be very brief. Uh, but as we come to this table, the mystery is unfolded before us, the great paradox of our faith. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, go ahead and, and open the first part of the packet, and you can take out the piece of bread. Lord, we have just sung and considered the great paradox of faith. You, the Almighty God, installed your King, but we rebelled. You came, Jesus, and left your throne of glory, took our frail Humanity, Lord, as we just saying, you were, you were robed in frail humanity, and yet you were still fully, truly, powerfully the eternal Son of God. You, like this bread, were broken, but your brokenness became our healing. Lord, what a mystery it is, but what a wonder you are. And so, Lord, we take this bread this morning in faith. Lord, this is a sign that we kiss the Son and that we find our refuge in Him. Friends, take and eat. Lord, we also hold up this cup, which in itself is a paradox. In the Scripture, it's called the cup of life, but it represents your death. For Jesus, as we just saw, you what a paradox. The lamb hung in victory on the cross. John in his gospel tells us at what we thought was your lowest moment, you were ruling, you were reigning, you were drawing men and women unto yourself because you hung in victory. Your blood was poured out, but that bought 
us, your death became our life. And so, Lord, we say this morning as we hold this cup up, we say thanks be to God for the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose crimson flow can wash us white as snow, whose death gives us life. Thank you. Take and drink. Friends, let's stand together for a concluding word of prayer and then our benediction. Holy Spirit of the living God, you are the one who anointed our Lord Jesus in his days upon the earth. And as we read that you came upon David in might and power and he slew Goliath to free the people, so you anointed Jesus in his days upon the earth. But he didn't slay Goliath. He slew death itself. He conquered all for us. Mighty Holy Spirit of the living God, you were then poured out upon us as your people. And we pray now you would come upon us in fresh power. That, Lord, you would empower us this week. Lord, we are in the blessed Messiah. We are in the King. We are in the Son. And so you have told us, Lord, that every promise of yours is yes because we are in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, we speak the amen by the Spirit of God. And we pray that this week, we would live in the power that is ours, because Jesus Christ has bought it for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in the way of obedience to your Son, that we would not walk in unrighteousness, that we would not walk the way of scoffers and mockers, but rather that we would kiss the Son, that we would embrace Him, that our words, our thoughts, and our deeds would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.